following is a recording for Kayvon Chinny Chan with the Atlantic Council of the U.S. on Tuesday, July 12, 2016 at 12.30 p.m. Central Time. Excuse me, everyone. We now have Ms. Mion O on the line to start the call. Please be aware that each of your lines is now in a listen-only mode. At the conclusion of the briefing, we will open the floor for questions. At that time, instructions will be provided on how to proceed to ask a question. I would now like to turn the call over to Ms. O, who will be offering some introductory remarks and facilitate the discussion. Ms. O, you may begin. Thank you, everyone, who are doing the call today. Um, my name is Nian O. I'm a non-resident senior fellow, both at the uh, Brent Go Club and the Global Energy Center here at the Council. Um, and today's call is part of the members' conference call series, which provides members from around the world an exclusive opportunity to speak directly with the work of the Atlantic Council. Please note that the call today is being recorded and will be distributed with members who are unable to join today. Um, I would like to introduce today's speakers. Um, we have Roger Chris, um, Robert Manning, and Jamie Nettle. Roger Chris is a non-resident senior fellow at the Scrollcraft Center and his areas of expertise in East Asian security issues. And Robert Manning, not resident senior fellow of the Scrollcraft Center and um, these areas of expertise include global trends, non-traditional threats, shelter revolution, and energy issues in East Asian energy security and overall security issues. And we have Bailey Bessel, non-resident senior fellow at the Scrollcraft Center, and these areas of expertise include Asian economic and political issues. Um, um, I'd like to thank the um, the Brent School Professor for inviting me today as a moderator, and I believe that this is a very timely topic because um, the court um, in The Hague ruled against Chinese claims to the right in the South China Sea, and the judges issue on uh, a unanimous decision in favor of the Philippines on the majority of the claims it made against China, and, and in addition, uh, it said China had caused severe harm to the environment by building artificial islands. Um, um, so I will begin um, with each speaker, um, and, and they, each speaker will have five to ten minutes of remarks, and then I will open up um, um, the discussion with one or two questions, and then I will also um, have a question from the audience. So, um, Roger, uh, would you please start with your opening remarks? Sure, and um, I actually will try not to use my full 10 minutes so we can leave more time for questions and discussions, but uh, I have to say I was I was uh, quite stunned by this ruling. There had been a lot of talk in advance that um, that what the the uh, permanent court of arbitration was going to decide might be ambiguous or equivocal, and uh, that really wasn't the case. Uh, just to go back, one of the issues um, that it first had to examine was whether or not it in fact had jurisdiction over this dispute, and it. It ruled on that issue in uh, exactly a year ago, almost exactly a year ago, and, and said that it did ha does have jurisdiction, um, which China had argued it didn't. Um, 
and uh, the ruling is extremely adverse to China on virtually every point. Uh, the the court ruled against China's claims, and you know, in in a sense, although I don't think this was the intent, they 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 not only ruled against China's claims, but they also uh, essentially scolded China on a number of points, uh, including that um, it had interfered with the uh, efforts of the tribunal to rule on this issue by engaging in land reclamation and construction of artificial islands while the uh, while the case was being heard. Um, in terms of the main findings, so China had claimed that, uh, well, it had never exactly made its claims clear, but it has, on a case-by-case -case basis, claimed that um, essentially all the South China Sea is historical fishing waters uh, for China, and, uh, and therefore it had an exclusive right um, to fish and extract resources from the region. The, the court essentially said you gave up all of your historical claims when you signed on to the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, um, and, and therefore only what uh, is described in the Law of the Sea applies, um, which mainly has to do with 12-mile uh, territorial waters, 200-mile exclusive economic zones, and um, in some cases uh, where the uh, continental shelf is delimited. Uh, interestingly, or quite surprisingly to me, they decided that none of the islands and features of the South China Sea was in fact a true island capable of sustaining human habitation, and therefore that none of them were entitled to exclusive economic zones. Um, and instead, they are each merely entitled to a 12-mile territorial sea. Um, so that immediately um, uh, took a huge portion of the South China Sea uh, off of the table in terms of being able to claim its exclusive economic zones. Um, and um, But the effect it has was it meant that the uh, exclusive economic zones of nearby um, maritime states, including um, the Philippines, uh, as drawn from the baselines of their territorial waters, do apply. And uh, in particular, it found that uh, China had uh, illegally constructed an artificial island in the Philippines' exclusive economic zone, an island that was created on a submerged feature that uh, that China was claiming. Um, so I think the interesting uh, issue now is how uh, China has already indicated that it does not accept the rulings of the of the uh, tribunal. Um, but this is a real uh, turning point for China potentially, or it's a test of its commitment to the rule of law in international relations. And um, they could, um, as they have said, they don't recognize the jurisdiction of the tribunal. They are not going to accept the rulings. Um, uh, but the real question is how they behave in the future. If they continue to act in violation of, uh, of what the tribunal has been found, I think that will send a clear signal to the world about 
um, China's commitment to uh, to the international norms and rules of the game. Um, they could, uh, alternatively, they could choose to say they don't they don't accept the rulings, but that in practice abide by them. And I think that would send a very different signal to the world. And that's what we should be watching uh, over the coming weeks and months. I think I'll stop there. Thank you, Roger, for the great um, remarks. And now we turn to uh, Robert Manny. Thank you. Um, well, I, the number of this, this is a really important uh, inflection point on a number of levels. Uh, first, as Roger mentioned, it, it, at the symbolic level, this whole issue of China uh, basing on vague historical rights and nobody knows where they came from um, or what they are. And they never they were always ambiguous about what they meant uh, versus the Law of the Sea Treaty, which they are a member of the UN Law of the Sea Treaty. And uh, so that puts that at that level, it's a problem. I think more broadly, uh, in terms of relations with Southeast Asia, it's, 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 it's going to continue a pattern where China is uh, mobilizing the entire region almost against them uh, you know, in terms of the ASEAN states. Um, and then more broadly, in terms of, uh, at one level, um, in terms of the Xi Jinping's foreign policy, uh, it looks like it's completely, in t the air has been sucked out of it. Uh, first, we had the bad decision earlier this month, uh, which blew up his South Korea policy. Now we have the Law of the Sea Treaty, which raises fundamental questions about China's so-called peacefulized philosophy. And uh, if you go back further, you could add uh, a couple of years ago when President Obama said Article 5 of the U.S.-Japan alliance applies to the Senkaku Islands, where in the East, the East China Sea, where China's also been very assertive, um, that's blown up in his face. So, uh, and if you recall, there was a, a mysterious memo from Central Committee members, uh, the Chinese elite, in January, that called on Xi Jinping to resign, and one of the uh, one of the reasons they mentioned was that his foreign policy is counterproductive, and I think this is a wonderful illustration of just how counterproductive it is. And so I think the having said all that, I think one we should keep in mind that great powers who have uh, decisions go against them in international tribunals have tended to ignore them. The one that comes to mind, in the 1980s, uh, the Nicaraguan government sued, the United, sued because the U.S. had mined its harbors during the days when we supported the Contras. The court ruled against them, and the U.S. ignored it. So that's the kind of president uh, the Chinese are going to be looking at, and that, that's one issue. I also think uh, we're likely to see uh, if President Duterte of the Philippines follows through on some of his recent comments, an effort that, that will, I think, give China some face in the sense of trying to negotiate um, sharing the resources of the area. For the Philippines, uh, fishing is very important. They have a large population of over 100 million, and they need the protein. And the Chinese have been kicking Chinese, uh, Filipino fishing boats out of areas within the Philippines' 200-mile economic zone. And secondly, Reed Bank has some gas that the Filipinos need as energy, 
the Chinese have blocked the development of that. So there are some areas where I think you could see, and the Chinese have claimed they're for joint development of resources, but what that has translated to is we're for joint development of everybody else's resources in their 200-mile economic zone. So uh, this will be an interesting uh, test. And lastly, in terms of U.S.-China relations, uh, I think it's going to uh, allow the United States to, to accelerate some of the freedom of navigation operations in the region. And, and I think the risk of the risk of conflict goes way up uh, after this. And I'll stop there. Thank you very much. Um, uh, so we um, uh, we have our final speaker, Jamie Nassau. Jamie, please introduce start. Great. Uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, thanks, Roger and Robert, for your thoughtful comments. Um, this is all about big power politics, in my view. Um, China has made a bet. And they've very consciously made a bet um, that they can turn up the temperature in the South and East China Seas and that the United States is not going to have the staying power to protect our, uh, our allies. Um, and so they've very consciously done that. And this, uh, the Philippines bringing this uh, case against China is um, a countermeasure by the Philippines, but there are other things being done by uh, states that are weaker by, uh, than China in order to push back. But the only reason that they can push back is because the United States is there. The United States, of course, is a treaty ally of, uh, of the Philippines, um, but even Vietnam um, is emboldened by the president by the presence of the United States in a way that they uh, and they would be not emboldened if the United States didn't have that role. So for sure, uh, this is a major body slam for China. Uh, but China knew that they were taking this risk. And, and in my view, that is their long-term strategy is to turn up the pressure and but over time uh, to demonstrate that the United States doesn't have the staying power or can't keep up with China's, um, China's pressure and to have everybody else in the, in the region recognize that essentially China um, will have that middle kingdom relationship, which is not a relationship of dominance, um, but it's a relationship you know, where China would have more maneuverability and the smaller states would have to defer to, uh, uh, to China. Uh, but because of that, for every action, there's a reaction. Um, and emboldened by the United States presence and by the treaty relationship with the United States, the Philippines uh, took a very risky move uh, in bringing this case. They, they, um, they uh, formed the case extremely smartly. The uh, Paul Reichler did just an absolutely fantastic job strategically in how to, uh, in how to put the, the, um, uh, the uh, case together. And for sure... It's a loss for China, but what does China keep? I mean, China still has control of these things. Maybe the law of the sea doesn't call them islands, but they're physically there, they're militarized, and there's nobody, including the United States, who's going to be willing to, uh, to take them away from, uh, from China. And even if China begins to demilitarize those islands, it still won't be that significant because they can be remilitarized really, um, uh, really within minutes. And so the facts on the ground have changed in a way um, that this ruling uh, is not going to affect. Having said that, uh, China um, has, has had kind of two different strategies uh, in, in recent years in how it grows into this new role, particularly in Asia. The first, which was extremely successful, 
was its peaceful rise strategy, where it said we don't want to cause any trouble, we're going to be supportive uh, of everybody else, there's room for everybody. And had China stuck with that strategy for 20, 30 more years, it would have been extremely difficult for the United States because uh, the U.S. room for maneuver was shrinking. Many of our traditional allies were saying, thank you for getting us through the Cold War. Uh, now we can, Asia is stable, we can handle this on our own. What China has done uh, through this extremely aggressive policy designed ultimately to demonstrate to U.S. allies that they can't rely on their relationship with the United States and to push uh, the U.S. military significantly um, out of the, of the Western Pacific is that they have agitated uh, pretty much almost everybody else in Asia, certainly every, all the other countries in maritime Asia, uh, and push them towards a reinvigoration of relations with the United States. So it's not, it's not um, unrelated that the U.S. military relationship uh, with the uh, Philippines is being resuscitated, uh, with Singapore, with Australia, and I will not uh, be at all surprised if in, in very, very shortly uh, we have U.S. Uh, uh, US naval ships docking at, uh, at uh, Cameron Bay. And so for China... On one hand, they're trying to demonstrate a level of influence in the region. They're annoyed that the United States is empowering and emboldening these smaller countries to stand, to stand up. And they have a, a difficult uh, dance right now. If they keep pushing, um, they're, they would be doubling down on the bets uh, that over time, over the next 10, 20, 30 years, um, they can, uh, that the United States won't have the staying power and that all of these countries that have agitated China is kind of like the Game of Thrones situation. I don't know if anybody watches Game of Thrones, but they, they, when there's a, a shift of power, all the people who stood up to the, to the most powerful person are all of a sudden in, in, uh, in big trouble. But between now and then, China will need to make some very fundamental decisions about the role it wants to play in the international system and uh, international law. Certainly, China can flout um, this decision, it will. The United States and other big countries have flattered international law decisions in, in, uh, in the past. Um, but at stake is the future, uh, not just of China's role in the international system, but of the international system itself. And China is one of the biggest bene uh, beneficiaries um, of that system. And so if I had to guess what's going to happen is that not much is going to happen between now and the, uh, the Hangzhou uh, G20, which is September uh, 4th or 5th. Uh, but after that, I, I do think that China is going to try to find a balance of, like, of taking a few, make, saying a few more moderating things, maybe taking a few relatively small steps, um, but with the goal of letting the status quo settle in. And it's the status quo that's beneficial to, to China. The flip side of that, is what will everybody else do? I, I definitely agree that the United States um, will now increase our, our uh, freedom of navigation um, activities in this area. Um, we'll have to look at what Vietnam does and whether other uh, claimant countries um, bring cases um, to the um, to the permanent tribunal. Uh, so we're we're entering a phase of great flux um, and a lot of uh, a lot of uncertainty. I don't think that there will be war um, uh, or even much military conflict because I think everybody is, is gauging where the parameters are. But certainly this decision shifts the parameters in a way that's certainly bad for China, very bad for Taiwan uh, because they have, they have 
uh, Taiping Island, which is in the Spratly, so their claim uh, that their uh, that their hold on that was weakened by this um, uh, by the tribunal's uh, holding, and probably good for for everybody else, but it's going to be a long negotiation process to figure out what this all means. So let me stop there. Thank you, Jamie. Um, thank you. Uh, I would like to thank each of speaker for a very insightful opening remarks. Um, I would like to start the discussion with um, um, a, with a question. So um, all of the three speakers talked about um, what is the argument about and why are they worth arguing over and um, who claims what and what did the court rule. And uh, I think it would be perhaps very interesting, although um, three speakers have already, you know, have already talked about U.S.-China relations and then what will come next, and especially, um, so I understand that uh, all the three speakers agree that um, this is actually real a turning point to China, and then China will suffer from considerable reputational costs in the international system, and, but I would like to um, discuss a little more in depth in terms of how will China likely respond to this verdict in terms of how might China react both in the near term and long term. Um, and also, at the same time, uh, we hear a lot from the Chinese perspective, but at the same time, we, uh, we would like to, I would like to hear from um, what would be perspective from other countries and uh, who are against China and how many more will speak up now that a decision has been reached out and how many will continue to do so in bilateral meetings, international forums, and United Nations General Assembly both for the years to come and it might take to convince China of the cost that it would be incurring. So, um, yeah, uh, I mean, I, I think this opens up some possibilities mm -hmm. because where we have been until now is the U.S. and China are kind of like hamsters and going around in a cage. They they build up islands, we send more ships through. They build up more, we send more ships through, and it just goes around and around. So this is introducing a new factor that's basically it hasn't resolved any of the territorial disputes between Malaysia, Philippines, Vietnam, uh, Brunei, and, and China. So, I th But I think it may open up the possibility for some kind of diplomacy if we, if we have any leadership. Um, the problem I see, and I fully agree with Jamie, that China's long-term strategy is based on a fundamental assumption that over time they get bigger, the military gets stronger, and the U.S. will eventually disappear. I think that's, a, that's being proved to be a wrong assumption. On the U.S. side, we also have a flawed assumption that somehow we can assert ourselves and maintain primacy in the area and keep the status quo uh, even as China rises. I don't think that's viable either. So on a number of levels, there needs to be uh, a, a new diplomacy which hopefully will will occur out, out of this. I, I think um, we can talk, we can, you know, uh, there, there, the amount of, of natural resources that the Chinese have claimed are there are wrong. There's, uh, th there isn't enough oil and gas there to make any difference in terms of China's energy demand. Mm -hmm. on, on the fishing rights, 
uh, they're depleting all the fish in the area. So there has to be some kind of international process to regulate fishing anyway. So and I think this may force that. And then the, the ruling also ch challenged them in terms of destroying coral, which is a huge problem worldwide. So I, I think on all those levels, um, it's introduced a new factor that hopefully will move the ball forward. But I'm, I'm not optimistic because we're looking at an Obama administration that's pretty much checked out in its final months. And uh, it's going to take a while for a new U.S. administration to gear up, whichever it is. And uh, so I think we're, we're in limbo now, and this could be dangerous because because uh, Xi Jinping looks like kind of a wounded animal in the sense that he's, the air has been sucked out of his entire foreign policy. And so what does he do? He's lost an enormous amount of face. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see how much populist nationalism they allow or the Chinese in the streets or, or not. Because this is an issue that they've entirely manufactured. Let me just say one point on this. Up until 1933, the Chinese didn't even know where the Spratleys were. Uh, their claim grew out of after, the, after France, which was a colonial power in Vietnam, claimed sovereignty over them, and then the Chinese responded to that. So uh, their claims have always been uh, dubious to start with, and now they've been, uh, they came up with the claim, they came up with the, the idea that we want these and then tried to figure out a rationale for, for why they why they deserve to have them, and that hasn't worked, and so I think uh, it the, the, the door is open to all kinds of diplomacy, but it's going to require a level of leadership and sophistication that we really haven't seen either from the U.S. or Asia. And, and let, let me jump in there. I mean, certainly I, I, I would agree that this isn't about natural resources, um, but it is about the flow of trade um, that goes through the South China Sea, which is, is enormous, obviously, on, the, on a global level. And it's also about uh, China's blue water navy access uh, to the open ocean, its nuclear deterrent. I mean, there's a lot of big strategic issues that rest upon China's maneuverability in the in the South China Sea. So for sure, I don't think it's about fishing rights or uh, gas or other natural resources um, from uh, from the South China Sea, but there are a lot of major, major strategic uh, issues. And I think that China, again, um, is, 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 like for sure this is a setback. Uh, the question is, um, are they, uh, what are their long-term goals and can they achieve them? And so I think that for them, they want to have, as I mentioned before, a level of dominance and, and influence. So those uh, those stationary to remove those. So now China already China has um, this this, this um, uh, demonstration of strength on the ground, this permanent presence that it didn't have. And so even with this uh, with this pushback. Um, China potentially has a gain because they wouldn't have been able to build those fake islands if they didn't have this ridiculous, uh, ridiculous claim. And the question is, are they better off with the fake islands and the setback on international law, or would they have been better off being a better international citizen and not having um, the fake islands? In terms of what China does uh, does next. Um, like I said, after the G20, they'll have options. I mean, one is to leave UNCLOS, um, like U.S. left UNESCO. Um, second is to either they could further militarize the islands, and then people have talked about an air defense 
an air defense zone in the, in the South China Sea. So there are a lot of aggressive things that they can do. And the, the goal of, of the United States and U.S. allies uh, will have to be um, to have carrots and sticks lined up. So if China is worse, there's a stronger consequence. And whether it's stronger naval presence, permanent presence perhaps someday in Cameron Bay and, and other things. And if it behaves better, um, there should be more potentially engagement. And, and we, I think if China's fears are that its trade is going to be cut off or access to oil is going to be cut off in times of, of conflict, I mean, maybe there are in the future some ways to, to talk about, about those things. It's certainly a very messy, sticky situation now. Thank you, Jamie. Roger, do you have any comments? Roger, do you have any comments? Roger, do you hear oh, me? Sorry, can you hear me now? Yes. Okay, sorry, I had the mute button on apparently. So on these artificial islands, um, uh, well, one of the interesting thing is of the seven features that China occupies, six of them apparently counted as rocks, and the and the arbitral tribunal did not and cannot rule on ownership of those rocks, um, and so uh, China has as much right to those rocks under international law as, as uh, anybody, but um, an occupation or possession is nine-tenths of the law in international law as well as domestic law, and so the fact that China is already sitting on those six rocks means that China probably has a pretty good claim to those. The interesting issue is the seventh one where the tribunal ruled that it was not an island or even a rock, but in fact was an artificial island that had been built on a submerged feature. And so that is, an, uh, under international law, that's an illegal structure that was built in Philippine, within the Philippines EEZ. So the question now in the U.S., although it has not ratified the Convention on the Law of the Sea, certainly has a long track record of um, making various forms of demonstrations about what is and isn't international waters. So what the tribunal said is that that artificial island is has no territory. Um, it has no territorial waters. It's submerged. The uh, part that was built up uh, uh, above the water is an illegal structure, so there is no Chinese territory there. That is clear. So the United States um, is probably at some point going to have to make a demonstration of that, and that would include sailing very close to it. Um, and uh, it would have to be, at some point, it would have to be other than so-called innocent passage, because if if the U.S. Navy or US, other U.S. ships, they don't have to be U.S. Navy ships, engaged in innocent passage, then that could be argued to be a tacit acknowledgement that it does have a territorial water. So, uh, and the question will be how China responds to that. So I think um, this is uh, going to be a an issue that's going to have to be handled with delicacy, and it isn't something that probably can be deferred till the next U.S. administration, but, uh, um, you know, there's probably, it may not be publicized, but there will probably be some maneuvering going on around that artificial island over the next few months. Yeah, I, I would hope 
So the message to China and Xi Jinping is that he's, they're violating the first rule of holes and uh, he's just digging, they're digging themselves in deeper and they need to stop digging. That's the first, that's the first uh, issue. And I think uh, this is going to have to be solved politically and, and diplomatically and nobody's really begun to think through on, on what basis that happens. And so I think that's a big challenge. And, you know, if this was an earlier time, there'd be a, a Geneva conference and all the major powers would be there and they'd, they'd sort it out. I think something like that has to happen, but I don't know how, how to bring that about or who will do it. It's difficult for the U.S. because we have no claims in the area. Uh, for us, it's just a question of the global commons and, and uh, access to them. But I think that uh, you have several levels of problems, countries in the region, countries fishing in the area, uh, countries that, uh, and companies that want to develop the resources. So I think there's several layers of diplomacy that need, need to occur, but it's gonna, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah, but the question is what, what's in China's interest? Because China, yeah, I guess anybody can negotiate anything, but for China, they made these outlandish claims, they took these, these rocks, they turned them into essentially military bases in a highly strategic part of the world, um, knowing that they were facing this risk. Obviously, they wanted to minimize it, which is why they've had the political and propaganda uh, campaign about it. But I, think it, I don't think that they can be that surprised. I mean, they've never fully made a, 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 a explain the basis in international law of these historical waters, which I'm sure that they don't even believe is valid in, in, under international law. So I, I just I don't know why they wouldn't why would they negotiate their departure um, from this critical strategic asset that's been so um, hard won and where they've already done the political calculus of the fallout and in my estimation determined that they can live with it. Okay, thank you. Um, so as we are running out of time, I believe that uh, we have to open up uh, to the audience. And I would like to mention briefly that um, those who have any questions, ask operator to give instructions to, um, actually operator, could you please give instructions to um, ask questions? And um, can, do we have, how many questions do we have lined up? At this time, we will be opening the line to questions. If you would like to ask a question, please press the star key followed by the one key on your touch tone phone now. Questions will be taken in the order in which they are received. Please be sure to introduce yourself when asking a question. If at any time you would like to remove yourself from the queue, please press star 2. So while we are waiting for a question, um, I uh, would like to ask one very brief question. So uh, Bob mentioned very briefly about uh, the new Philippine president, Duterte. So, uh, he, so the, the country, Philippines, they are facing uh, crucial challenges after this June 30 inauguration with regard to whether he will continue uh, this geopolitical agenda was proceeded by the, the current president. So, and, and how are they going to um, challenge the Beijing's claim or um, what are the opportunity costs for the Philippines? And it would be interesting to um, discuss on this topic, on this issue in relation with the uh, China-U.S. Um, relationship that we discussed earlier. 
Well, it's important to note that the U.S., despite the alliance with the Philippines, uh, has never said that Scarborough Shoal, which China occupied, uh, was covered under the treaty, as we have done, with, for example, in the case of Japan with the Senkaku. So I think the Philippines do not trust that the U.S. is going to bail them out. And that's why I suggested earlier, I, if I had to bet, I would bet in the next six months you're going to see negotiations between the Philippines and China over the sharing and developing of resources around these disputed areas. Okay, thank you. Roger and Jamie, uh, would you like to make any comments? Yeah, I, w I would agree with that. I mean, it's a great strategy for China. It's like, I claim your house, and then I say, but I'm reasonable, let's share your house. And so China had nothing. They make these outlandish claims. They've got a, a very strong naval presence. Nobody wants conflict. And, and that's why I'm saying is that that China's in a very strong position, even though they've um, they've obviously lost um, lost this round, uh, and um, the new uh, Philippine president definitely has an opportunity uh, to leverage that, especially if he thinks that uh, he's not going to get much, maybe as a result of this um, of this uh, finding. Um, he'll have a stronger position in uh, in negotiations. So I. I, I Definitely think that there there is some wiggle room and there will be some negotiations in the future. I agree with uh, what Robert just said. Uh, thank you, Jamie. Um, actually, we have questions lined up. On um, um, Roger, do you would like to add uh, any final brief comment, or would you like to hear questions from the audience? Let's take some questions. Okay. Okay. So we're ready to um, hear the questions. Our first question comes from Janelle Tebow with Bank of America. Hi there, thank you. You said that the Hague Tribunal made a ruling on the existence of six rocks. What rights does that give to China that they have defined them as rocks? Uh, I'll take that one. So under international, under the, the Convention on the Law of the Sea, it says that uh, rocks uh, that are not capable of sustaining human habitation and basically the tribunal said everything in the Spratly group of the South China Sea is a rock, um, are entitled to a 12-mile territorial water around that feature, whatever it is, um, but not an exclusive economic zone. So instead of, uh, if you can imagine, circles with diameters of 12 nautical miles instead of diameters of 212 nautical miles, um, the, the amount of area, and there are 40 or 50 um, such features that have been occupied in the South China Sea. So the amount of air of territorial waters that accrues to all of those um, is much, much smaller than it would have been if the tribunal had at least said um, that the larger ones are entitled to an exclusive economic zone and uh, now, of course, China had this ambiguous 9-dash line claim, which was even more expansive than the exclusive economic zone. So, um, uh, and, but interestingly, since though none of the islands in the Spratly group have an exclusive economic zone, uh, the Philippines, which basically we're talking about Palawan uh, province, which is this, Long Island that protrudes 
southwest from the main Philippine group does have an exclusive economic zone that extends out 200 miles. I haven't looked on the map to see exactly how far that is. But basically, it means that a big chunk of this area is now has now been uh, identified as being within the Philippines' exclusive economic zone, and uh, with only a uh, a few much smaller areas whose uh, ownership remains ambiguous because the tribunal didn't rule on who is the uh, proper owner of any of those islands. Uh, rock. Stop there. Any of those rocks? Rocked. Yes, they're rocks now. <laughs> yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, I believe that we uh, we have another question lined up. So, operator, please. Again, if you would like to ask a question, please press star 1. Our next question comes from Ashes Sin with the Atlantic Council. Hi. Uh, thank you all for doing the call. I was wondering if you could comment on the enforcement mechanism for the tribunal ruling. Thank you. Uh, I can take that. Um, uh, using the Yiddish word is bubkis. There's no enforcement whatsoever. Um, so this is all um, yeah, that. So it, it's binding, technically binding, um, but there's there's no enforcement mechanism at all. So the enforcement mechanism is politics. It's legitimacy. Um, but uh, in and of itself, um, there's, there's no direct um, enforcement uh, mechanism coming out of the tribunal. Now, I would say that it's possible that commercial disputes that could arise, for example, between, I mean, uh, what everything Jamie said is absolutely correct. However, one can imagine, uh, say, a commercial dispute arising between, say, two oil companies that are drilling um, in disputed waters or gas, uh, drilling for gas in disputed waters. And, um, and again, if it was, uh, well, maybe that's not a good example. Let's, let's talk about fish because I don't want to talk about the continental shelf. So if, if you're fishing in the Philippines' exclusive economic zone and a Philippine company and a Chinese company got into some sort of dispute, um, uh, over fishing catches or something like that, then the ruling of the tribunal could have an effect on the resolution of that commercial dispute. But there is, as JB said, there is no enforcement uh, mechanism between states for international law. Thank you, Roger. Um, if we don't have additional questions, I'd like to um, ask a final question before closing our conference call today. And um, so my question. Do we know there's no more questions? Okay. So um, my question would be, I mean, um, so why, um, so um, thinking about like how they have tried to reach a resolution, and then China tends to prefer bilateral negotiations with the other parties, and I thought that it would be interesting why China uh, would like to pursue on a bilateral basis rather than a multilateral basis on this topic. Um, and um, so that's specific related to why the Philippines has sought international arbitration instead. So if we could hear any comments. 
um, well, it's, it's very simple. China's big, and everybody in ASEAN is little, and and uh, they they have more leverage dealing bilaterally, and uh, some countries may may move in that direction. Some some of the issues um, are not negotiable. For example, there's a tremendous oil and gas and fishing rich area off in the Puna Islands from Indonesia, which China has acknowledged is, is, is part of Indonesian sovereignty. But China claims they have historic fishing rights, and uh, it's, it's created enormous conflict. The Indonesian government has uh, blown out of the water about a dozen Chinese boats and captured a couple of them. And this, this, uh, this decision has an impact on that because it shows that it's, it's saying that China has no rights. I wouldn't be surprised if Indonesia uh, filed a claim if they couldn't uh, get China to back off. So I, I think I, I think we're in a period of real uh, uncertainty and indecision, and it's going to take a while to play to play out. But I think the starting point is probably going to be, as Roger was saying, whoever owns, whoever has control of particular islands. You know, the, the best we could hope for is a freeze on activity. I think that's what you'll see ASEAN at the next uh, ASEAN meeting um, try try to put forward in a code of conduct or something like that. Uh, it'll be interesting to see whether the G whether this is an issue that enters the G20, which China is sharing this year on an island in the South China Sea, <laughs> uh, and um, that that that'll be the uh, I think the next test in September. In the in the period between then, we're just going to see. Uh, a lot of hand wringing, and I, as I say, I think you'll see the Philippines move forward on negotiations, and I think you'll see the U.S. being more assertive in terms of the uh, access for our freedom of navigation. Thank you, Bob. Uh, we actually have one more question waiting, uh, but yeah, um, Jamie and Roger, okay. Yeah, let me just let me just add one more more thing. So I think I sure. think there there will be a freeze. China will negotiate a freeze. And that's why they've been building so aggressively up to now in anticipation that they might lose this case. And the handwriting has been on the wall for a, a long, long time. So if there's a freeze and China keeps these fake islands, which are now fully militarized, already they've changed the strategic balance in the South China Sea that probably only war will reverse. And so that's why, I, I, again, I, I think this is, a, this is not great for China. Um, but in overall strategic terms, I still think China is stronger um, today because it has a, uh, because it has these fake islands. Uh, if the rest of the, of the region and the world continues to come together and put pressure and hold China accountable, that could change. But right now, I still think China is better off today than, than they were five years ago. Thank you, Jamie. Uh, Our next question comes from Jay Donnelly with Huntington Ingalls Industries. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'd be curious to know your opinion on the the fact that the U.S. has not signed on to the uh, United Nations Convention for the Law of the Sea. Does that in any way uh, inhibit or undermine our ability to use this tribunal ruling to enforce uh, freedom of navigation throughout the South China Sea uh, international waters? I would. Uh, yeah, I think it's a, it's a major embarrassment. 
And, and I think if you go back over the last 25 years, every Secretary of Defense gone back to the Reagan administration, every Joint Chief of Staff has advocated ratifying it. We have signed it. We haven't ratified it. And the official U.S. policy is to abide by its strictures. Um, but we lose an enormous amount of moral authority when we're lecturing the Chinese about rule of law when we haven't signed on to the rules ourselves. And that's one of the reasons I think uh, the Chinese don't take this so seriously. Well, if I could just add something to that, though, which is, although the U.S. has not ratified the Convention on the Law of the Sea, we do abide by it. And um, so many uh, states have now ratified the Convention that it is, um, it could be argued to have reached the status of being a common air national law that is binding on all states, whether they are signatories or not. And uh, as more and more states continue to ratify it, unless we start to see some withdrawals, um, as Jamie suggested China might do, um, I, I think it will become less and less relevant that the U.S. has not ratified it. Um, but in any case, uh, with international laws, actually practices uh, is uh, more important than, um, uh, or at least it, equally important to um, what you signed up to. And the U.S. has been, and in fact, we not only behave in accordance with it, but we go out of our way to ensure that others are behaving in accordance with the international law of the sea. So, Jay, I'll just add, it's a great question. Um, I agree with everything that's been said, except I think it's, it's just a national shame uh, that we haven't ratified this treaty, that we have our, uh, particularly our Navy, um, to have young men and women putting their lives on the line uh, to support a set of principles where our Senate, not even the full Senate, a small number of senators have blocked something that's very clearly in the United States national interest, the military is on board, every, Almost everybody in this in this country is is on board, except for a very small number of ideologically driven senators. And it's just it's it's yes, well, there is customary, customary inter, international law, um, but the United States uh, has done such a miraculous job of building the system of international law over these past 70 years that we really need to, to ratify this. And I hope that we that we can the the law exists without us, but it'll be stronger with us. Okay, thanks everyone on um, doing the call today and, and thank you um, speakers for sharing very um, insights and the immediate analysis on this timely issue. Um, so unless we have additional call, we are about to close our conference call. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful day. Bye. Thanks everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. This concludes today's teleconference. You may now disconnect.